0: Hello, I'm Lulu.
1: Hello, I'm Lulu's mother, Sandra, and this is Inside the Jewel Box.
0: Inside the Jewel Box is a podcast in which my mother and I meet with fascinating people from Aotearoa and inquire into the objects that give meaning to their lives. The objects in my home have always been imbued with magical powers. The teapots, te vai vai, rings, brooches, punamu, are portals into worlds both known and unknown to me. They're not just objects. They're talisman, taonga, memento more, keepsakes. And to my dad, they stuff that matters. But it wasn't until I was 26 years old, I started asking proper questions about these objects. Through these conversations with my family, I understood them in a way I hadn't before. I felt closer to them. My family are private people. The story of the objects they... And most of us really hold dear, often remain invisible. These stories live and die with us.
1: When my darling daughter suggested a podcast about the objects that give our lives meaning, I told her I'd love to hear the stories of these objects that people hold close.
0: For our first episode of Inside the Jewel Box, I thought it was fitting to start with my co-host, my mother Sandra, Sandra remembers at the same time she learned to talk, she was given a colourful Venetian glass-beaded necklace. She has photos of her wearing it when she was two years old on the boat to England. It now lives on her dressing table. As Sandra grew older, she transitioned from doll and handbag collections. In her 20s, she collected earrings. In her 30s, her interests expanded to clothes from young designers and vintage art and ceramics. But it wasn't until I was 26 years old, I started asking proper questions about them. One day, mum was looking through her jewellery. She had it all sprawled out across the bed. All the pieces were so familiar to me. I could picture them pinned to her coats, around her wrists, on her fingers. But I knew almost nothing about them. I asked mum to explain each piece. She showed me a kachina figure that her friend gave her while on a high school exchange in California. She showed me a stunning scaparelli bracelet that my dad gave her. I was surprised at how often talking about each piece brought tears to our eyes. Mum opened my late grandmother's jewellery box and found an old envelope that contained pale blonde strands of my late grandfather's hair. His own mother had carefully collected these when he was a child. In the same box, there was a silver and fabric decoration from my grandmother's wedding cake, a message from a fortune cookie, and the lipstick from Sandy's own wedding. Today I've asked mum to pick three objects. So when I asked mum to pick three objects out to talk about today, I gave her several prompts um, to help her pick those objects. So these were an object that she might have loved but lost, um, an object that she's always wanted but may never own, an object from someone she loves, uh, the most recent object she's acquired, and or an object she had commissioned or gone out of her way to get. So, Mum, can you describe the three pieces you ended up choosing and why you chose those?
1: Well, the hoo-hoo grub brooch, it's uh, something I have recently acquired. I loved it, I lost it, and now I've got a new one an arts and crafts brooch that uh, was given to me by my husband and finally a bag that I commissioned.
0: Let's start with the hoo grub. So can you just describe in detail what this brooch looks like?
1: Well, hoo grubs are New Zealand native grubs. So what you have to imagine is a string of pearls put together in a C kind of pattern and a C lying on the horizontal line and it's segmented like the the body of a grub and those pearls sit up, um, on a pin a silver pin
0: And when do you wear the hoo-hoo grub brooch?
1: Well I was given it in May for my birthday so I've really worn it for winter occasions. It's taken a liking. I have a wonderful Margaret Howe tweed coat and it lives on there quite a lot. And then this winter, I knitted a V-neck top and sometimes I take it off and put it on that. So it just goes between those two items at the moment.
0: (laughs) And how did you acquire this hoo-hoo brooch, Mum?
1: Well... I had a special birthday this year and I asked my daughter and her twin brother if this would be something they would like to give me for that birthday and the hoo-hoo bug was special because when I was a child I remember my father cutting down a a tree that had died in our garden and there were hoo-hoo bugs Inside that, and I think if my memory's right, we fried them and ate them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of, I guess, nostalgic, but also I know that it was made by a jeweller who you really admire, Jane Dodd. Um, how did you come to learn about Jane Dodd?
1: I think I first saw Jane Dodd's work at the Dunedin Art Gallery. And right from that time, I'm fascinated because her work in part has a Victorian sensibility and she always seemed to be doing works around claws or um, the headdresses of chickens or the feet of uh, kittens or strange baboons. So they're kind of images, jewellery images that stay in your mind. But the hoo-hoo bug, I just loved because it represented a New Zealand grub. And I love pearls.
0: (laughs) And, Mum, if I recall correctly, the grub seemed to escape from your coat and disappear. Is that right?
1: Yes. I'd only just acquired it, only had it for two weeks. And I went down to Dunedin to visit my friends. And I wore it on that tweed coat on the way down. And then on my last day in Dunedin, I put it on my coat and realised I lost it somewhere at Stuart Street or at the Dunedin Art Gallery. And that was it. I was so shocked. I couldn't believe that had happened, but it had. And the funny thing was I knew every single place I'd been into – And when I rang each place to see if anyone had found a Jane Dodd brooch, so many of the people knew exactly the kind of brooch I was talking about um, because they knew Jane Dodd's work, but still to no avail.
0: So the hoo-hoo grub was lost. What happened next?
1: I had really fallen in love with it, so I had to try and get another one I went through um, Caroline Billing at the National Gallery in Christchurch and I did get another one and this time round I got a safety catch added so I'm hoping there'll be no more mishaps
0: No more escaping hoo-hoo grubs (laughs) (laughs) Before we go any further, let's take a deep dive on Jane Dodd Any research cited will be provided in the description for the podcast. Jane Dodd is an Ōtipōti born and based jewellery maker. Jane's work speaks to her city's Victorian sensibility. Mistress of the once-upon-a-time story, Jane takes us both back to old Europe and its rich and troubling history, and forward to a world in which humans are held accountable for crimes against nature. The objects she conjures up brooches, necklaces, earrings and talismans, created over a 30-year practice, slither, wobble, crawl, fly and swim. There is a hint of treachery, subversiveness and whimsy in their very presence. Concerns for the natural world and the fraught relationship we have with it are paramount in the conceptual background to Jane's work. Carl Chittam, director of The Douse, describes those who have loved her work as dodologists. Both she and the dodologists share an infinity for talisman, symbols, and heraldic devices that plot out storylines. The titles of her pieces tell us so much more. Baboon dreams, peka Pecker, a grizzly Poor, ghost walrus, proboscis problems, when every tusk is gone, These names ground us in our childhood reading of Grimm's fairy tales and Aesop fables, but where humans are the ogres. Jane describes herself as a metalsmith using wood, shell, and stone to bring more scale, texture, color, and plasticity to her work. Since the early 90s, Jane has exhibited widely in solo and group exhibitions in Aotearoa, Her work is held in Te Papa, the Daos, Hawke's Bay Museum, and in private collections. She is represented by the National Gallery, AVID, and Masterworks Gallery. In 2017, Jane was selected to represent Aotearoa in the prestigious Schmuck International Contemporary Jewellery Exhibition in Germany. In 2021, the Daos staged a major survey exhibition of Jane's work. And now, Back to the interview. The second object you've brought along today, Mum, is an arts and crafts brooch. Can you describe what it looks like?
1: Well, in some ways, it looks like a very important medal. It's made of silver, complicated scroll work and arts and crafts sort of patterning, and in the centre of that is um, a bone sort of carving. But the effect is, so it um, is of a medal with a bar and it hangs from that.
0: And you'd it's it's kind of the size of a medal and you'd wear it in the same place as a medal might be pinned on a jacket.
1: Yes. So it's not such an easy piece to wear because you have to sort of think about the formality of that piece.
0: Well, then when do you wear this brooch?
1: Uh, I... Don't wear it that much, um, but I just absolutely love it. I often try it on clothes and then realise it's not going to work in that way. It looks good on black vintage dresses or like if you've got a black pinafore com de garçon dress, that's the kind of situation. It demands some kind of um, formality, perhaps in the occasion and in what I'm going to wear.
0: How did you acquire this brooch?
1: Well, I feel very lucky to have been gifted it by my husband in uh, 2004. We were living in Dunedin at the time. And after I acquired it, because I really didn't know anything about Edith Morris, I made a point of asking to see some of her works that I knew were in the Otago Museum collection.
0: So Edith Morris made... The brooch. Yes. And then from that point on, have you kept following her work?
1: Yes, because when I went to the Otago Museum, I was very grateful to um, Moira White. She's been such an advocate for Edith Morris. She showed me the works in the Otago Museum collection. And ever since, I've been on the outlook for more of her work. Jumped the COVID lockdown years and out of the blue a number of her brooches, spoons and bracelet cuffs have come up for auction. Greenstone, carnelian and green tourmaline brooches have sold in the teens with Dunbarra Sloan achieving a record price of 28000 plus premium for a singularly striking mother of pearl hanging pendant brooch. Edith's hallmark was a feathered arrow enclosed in an oval. I think about these arrowed pieces travelling forward in time to new owners, whether they are institutions or private citizens. I hope they really treasure the work. The drive and ambition that compelled Edith to earn a living as a practising craftsperson is remarkable in itself. She must have been very gutsy, which I think is a quality embedded in her works.
0: It's, it's really amazing that you say her works are now selling for prices like $28,000. Um, at the time she was making, do you know if they were achieving that level of um, popularity price equivalent?
1: Well, we do know that Charles Brash bought some of her works ...for his wider family and gave some of them to the Otago Museum. And he was a person of great taste. So clearly there was an audience or a a market for her work. And I do know that a great many diplomats based in Wellington bought her work. So I had always assumed it was either in institutions or had gone overseas... But perhaps this isn't the case.
0: Let's take a deep dive on Edith Morris. The information about Edith is sparse. This has everything to do with her gender, her time and a pursuit of jewelry making, sitting as it has done outside an art historical canon. Artist jewelers like Edith occupy a space at the midway point between 19th century immigrant manufacturers, and the explosion of jewellery practitioners from the 1917s onwards. Edith was born in Kent. She immigrated to Aotearoa with her husband in 1924. Then in 1934, the couple and their two sons moved to Wellington. She undertook a metalworking course at the Wellington Technical College. For the next 25 years, she pursued a craft from a workshop and home in Days Bay. She sold her works to individuals like herself Charles Brush, the poet, literature editor, and arts patron, both corresponded with and purchased work for him and his family, friends, and the Otago Museum. Many of her pieces were purchased by foreign diplomats. At this time, little was written about craft, and what was written emphasised ceramics and weaving. Edith's work was unique. Many of her pieces are recognisably arts and crafts and style, with the emphasis on metalwork and single, semi-precious stones. Other pieces appear inspired by wider references to Celtic, Mexican and older, non-European cultures. And now, back to the interview. The third object you've brought along today is the commissioned bag. Um... Can you describe for us what it looks like?
1: It's a Vita Cochrane bag. I have quite a few Vita Cochrane bags, but this is particularly special because it's a sort of memorial to my mother. It's a black filtered bag that has got structure and form, like a traditional handbag, but open at the top and with a handle, a braided handle, so it's black, and on the front panel, there are bluey and pinky hydrangeas, my mother loved hydrangeas, and had them in her garden, and then on the back, there are little violets and lily of the valley, my mother was English, so I think of those flowers when I think of her. Now, the Black, uh, the handle is braided in black fill, and then the lining inside is a pretty little floral liberty print.
0: And why did you commission this bag?
1: At, at that, Vita was already making bags like that. I would quite admired another version with nasturtiums on it. But I just thought it would be nice to have a memorial bag For my mother in which I could put special things and not that that my mother had lots of handbags, but it just seemed apt and the flowers. So when I have it sitting, um, I often just look at it and think about those particular flowers and think of my mother.
0: Do you use that bag a lot?
1: I do. I do. I collect vintage dresses. I don't like wearing too much vintage on vintage, but I sometimes wear it out with the vintage dresses, the floral ones particularly. Um, I like it as an evening bag because it's very easy to put your cell phone and your lipstick and a mirror inside. It's not a day bag. I think it is um, special occasions.
0: How did you come to learn about Vita and her work?
1: Living in Dunedin, and that was the time that her husband, Justin Payton, was the curator at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, and I got to know them. I'd already seen her work, I think, in Plume in Dunedin. And, um, yes, I've slowly been acquiring all sorts of her works. I've got a sort of wasabi bag. I've got Otto. Lots and lots of them. There's always another thing that one would like from Vita, and I loved the like the craft work, and it's very much about woman, what has been seen as woman's domestic work.
0: Let's take a deep dive on Vita Cochrane. Vita was born in Wellington and now lives in Sydney. For over twenty years, Vita has been making bags, samplers, and rag rugs. The artist embodies the long history of weaving and stitching as a way of telling stories. Historically, this has been women's work. Vida paints patterns with stitches that both make this point and ask us to rethink the importance of this work. She is the gentlewoman as a subversive, embroidering, forgotten truths, rescuing overlooked or unacknowledged domestic makers, exposing the unconscious stories, the hidden sides, the ends hanging out of works, and in the process, making visible a long history of women's work. But Vida's work is not a history project. She's always generously sharing her knowledge, running workshops to enthuse the next generation of would-be rag rug makers, and sharing her delight in overlooked op shop finds, whether it be a bed jacket, a tea cozy, or homemade Depression-era bags. A constant in her work are her bags. She recounts the many forms she's explored. She says, there are flower bags, zip bags, Bargello tapestry bags, rope bags and bags made of triangles, bags which are tools for collecting that are themselves collections of buttons, gloves, stitches, bags for picnics, for friends, for children. But a bag in Vita's world is always so much more than a bag. She gently chides us that the first tools invented by prehistoric humans were bags, small receptacles, in which to gather and transport other things, rather than the weapons and tools of the hunt, which are better preserved by history. The people, often women, who made these bags would fill them with things useful, edible, or beautiful, and then carry them back to their communities for eating, sharing, and looking at. Referencing Ursula K. Le Guin's essay, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, the bag as an overlooked cultural object Vita asked us to look again at the so called domestic. Vita received an MA in Art History from the University of Auckland in 1998 and began handmaking bags and other embroidered objects in 2000. Her recent exhibitions have showcased her work with the sampler, rag rug, and bag, and more recently, a new series of wall hangings made from deconstructed garments she calls exploded coats. Vida is interested in the traffic between fine and applied art, how we value things we use that are made in a domestic context in contrast to things that are made in a fine art context. Vida's work has been included in curated group exhibitions at public art galleries in Aotearoa and Australia, and she's frequently been involved in presenting workshops to engage others in her knowledge of textile-making traditions. Vida's work is held in the collections of Auckland Museum, Te Papa, Otago Museum and the Dowse, as well as many private collections. She's represented by Anna Miles Gallery in Auckland. And now, back to the interview. Another interesting point that I've picked up on is the sort of Dunedin theme. Either the artist that you seem to have objects from uh, live in Dunedin or have lived in Dunedin or you have first encountered their work there.
1: Well, that is true. We were living in Dunedin, and Dunedin's got such a wealth of creative people living there. But I think it was also a time in my life where I had partially transitioned out of uh, the career world, and I was doing my uh, doctorate. So I actually had a lot more time to do research not only on my doctoral subject but on objects and Dunedin is such a rich place for that because it's our only city with a real Victorian tradition and I was going to say with my bag that I have a Vitas at the same time uh, Violet Fagan had a wonderful vintage shop in Dunedin and I acquired some bags that are sort of like Vitas they were made during the depression years And they too have those Liberty print um, interiors, but they were often made at that time with filtered carpet lining and then embroidered with flowers. So I sort of have the the historical um, examples and then Vita's wonderful living example.
0: I also love how all the makers are women, which I think is interesting, especially, I guess... Um, If we look at Edith Morris, she was making at a time that potentially would be a time where predominantly men were makers and women may have struggled to really shine.
1: I think that's a deliberate choice on my part. I'm very interested now, you know, having travelled to places like South Korea where you see that the boundaries we have between high art and crafts and ceramics um, are, are not there, though um, crafts and ceramics are high art. I sort of like uh, valuing and treasuring people that have been undervalued, underrecognized because it is women's work, because it may have happened in a domestic um, situation, and that really motivates me in what I acquire. So, yes, there's lots of... Um, forgotten histories where uh, for women to do work like edith morris would have been really challenging in that time um yes that really fuels a lot of my collecting
0: well thank you mum for not only being a co-host but also being the subject of um, this first episode.
1: And thank you, Lulu, and I look forward to hearing the stories from the wonderful people we're going to interview about their collections.